I do think that marketing can make the world better. And I think these CMOs can do that. Um, we just have to work to make sure that they cover their bases first before they try to change the world. And so that's what we do at CMO Huddles. We share, care, and dare each other to greatness. And it's kind of cool. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in our lives and at work. I'm Brian Kramer, and I am so excited to introduce our guest, who is someone I admire, who is a dear friend, and I'm honored to have on my show, Humanly Possible. Drew Neiser is the founder of Renegade and CMO Huddles. He is uniquely wired as both a strategist and a writer. Drew has helped dozens of CMOs unleash their inner renegade and told the stories of over 450 marketers via his podcast, Renegade Marketers Unite. His ad age column and two books uh, have uh, are now out, including his newest book, which I can't wait to talk about. Um, and he is ranked among top B2B influencers. Drew has been a featured marketer expert on ABC News, CNBC, CBS Radio, and Tony Robbins podcast, among many others. And, you know, just small places. His second book, Renegade, which we're going to talk about that just came out, Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands, launched October 5th, 2021, the day before my birthday. So thank you for that gift. Uh, in fact, I think I got it on October 5th in the, in the, in the mail. So that's kind of ironic. Uh, Drew earned a BA in history from D Duke University. He lives in Manhattan with his wonderful, beautiful wife and is the proud parent uh, is a proud parent of two delightful grown-ups and a French bulldog named Louis. He currently sits on the boards of Urban Green Council and the Duke Alumni Association. He's an avid Ben Franklin fan and Drew's favorite aphorism remains, well done is better than well said. Drew, welcome to Humanly Possible and I am so happy to have you here. Oh, Brian, it's so great to be here. It's always great to talk to you anytime on a show or otherwise. It is. It's like, um, it's like every time we, we, we don't talk for a while and then we talk and it's like the, like we just left off yesterday kind of thing. Um, I'm going to just totally jump right in and ask you my favorite thing to ask, which is what's one, one small thing, uh, that felt small at the time. And actually it may have felt big even, uh, that ended up being a big shift for you. So I was um, small, really small. When I was uh, uh, when I got my driver's license at sixteen, I was five foot four. I got stopped three times by police officers because I thought they thought I was way too young to drive. When I graduated from high school, I was five foot six, and then I grew six inches. Now I also had size thirteen shoes at five foot six. So I was like, I I kind of knew I was either going to grow. And like my father had done, or I was going to be a clown um, because I had these huge feet and was short. But I was also little Andy Neiser. And that was how I was known is little Andy Neiser. I was one of three boys. I was the youngest. And so 
little Andy Neiser left high school at five foot six and sort of like, hello, everybody. And then, you know, trying to get attention and then grew into six foot tall uh, Drew Neiser. And there was, it was kind of a small thing that I think I still sort of, there's little Andy Neiser is in there. <laughs> oh, how funny. And so what was that like to be arrested? So it was one of, so I got stopped uh, as a, this is just sort of why one of my friends always said, Neiser, you are the luckiest person in the world. I got stopped like 15 times before I actually got a ticket. And it was always because I looked so young. And it wasn't until I grew a mustache that they finally gave me a ticket. Uh, And so it was scary. It really I mean, I, I have to say that was sort of that nerve wracking moment that, you know, if you've ever been an actor and before you get on stage and you're like, have that moment of just tremendous fear. Um, that's that's what it was. Oh, well, I um, I have had that fear so many times when those lights go on uh, behind me. And I, I, I suppose everybody who is who is uh, listening right now is is. Uh, probably having one of those moments you know it's like tasting a lemon when you when you taste the lemon everybody else tastes it right with you it's like one of those things when you see the lights like oh my god yeah uh how many how many of us have felt that and so uh when uh, you grew up um uh in new york actually no in california in newport beach california oh you grew up in california yeah dude Uh, and so when growing up and how did, how did you go from California then to the East coast and where did the path take you to, how did the shift work for you to getting to New York? So it, it sort of goes like this. So, and this is one of those small things that became a big thing. So um, everyone, Nizer boys go to Yale. Uh, that's just what they've done for like three or four generations. And when I didn't get in, that was a moment. Um, and then God bless Duke University, who sent me a note saying, Hey, we'll put you on the waiting list. And we go, okay, okay, that sounds good. And then eventually let me in. Um, but so, but part of the deal was you just go out of state for, for college. So, um, go to Duke, incredibly grateful. Um, go back to California after graduating and worked at an agency. Um, and it's funny because I, the way I got my first job was that I, um, sent out, baby pictures and with a clever headline and some sort of rhyming thing with a little resume and sent it to 10 different agencies. And one of them called, and that was the one I got hired from. Uh, so I was still, I think little Andy Neiser at that moment still pick me, come on. I want to be in your show. Uh, so, and then, and then, so then this is another sort of one of those little moments uh, I, after two and a half years of sort of learning everything you weren't supposed to do at a local advertising agency, I said, all right, I'm either going to go to film school, which was something I'd always thought about, or I'm going to go to New York and really learn the business. Well, I screwed up my applications to both UCLA and USC. So I went to New York for a week and gave myself a week to find a job um, and did, and was really fortunate to get a job at JWT and a long time ago. And that started me and then I thought I'd stay two years in New York, but I mar- met a woman from Buffalo, New York, who likes the seasons. And I've been in New York now a long time. 
Oh, wow. So um, I, I would love to know just in your um, in your agency experience, like when you got that first job, what your, your creativity and you still have that today. I, I can't wait to get to that. Um, what what was it that you did to work your way through the agency and how did you work your way up in the agency and what was that like? So what's so funny about my early career in advertising is that one, I was an account person who really wanted to be a creative and that made me a pain in the ass um, because I would come up with ideas that no department wanted. And two, I didn't want to do traditional advertising and this happened really early on in my career. So I kept saying, well, I know we're here to do an ad for Listerine, but here's a hundred other things that we could do that would be really cool. Um, and finally I got a chance on a small brand for Lubriderm where we got him into skiing and it was unbelievable. It was a great program. So when I left JWT, uh, that it was, what could I do that was sort of ancillary? And I ended up in, at first I was like direct and then it was, uh, which was horrible. And then it was, uh, event marketing. And then I ended up a shy a day doing regular stuff. So I kept trying to get out of the business and that's how I ended up going to a Japanese agency because I thought, well, this will be different because <laughs> it's run by Japanese and it'll be different. And little did I know that three years later, I get a chance to start an agency for them. Um, and that got me into a whole different thing, but I had just been I had two major problems. One, I really didn't want to do the work that I was supposed to be doing, both in terms of the type of marketing, uh, which was traditional TV, 30 second, 15 second spots. And two, I wanted to do more than simply present, you know, to be the guy who carried the bags to the creative, to, for the creative. Yeah, right. I, I know. I always love hearing uh, how you got started agency stories because, you know, it's, tough to break into the industry and when you're when you're in it's such a uh, especially back in that kind of those agency days uh the real creative days of of what the magic and what went on and how you know what you could do and how you can create and just the way you even got in with the with the baby photos like that was the way that you 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 work things and um and and uh and so what was one thing that you learned in your agency days that really made a difference to where you are today well it's sort of i described this a little bit it at at Wells, Rich Green was an agency in California that I started with, which was a New York-based agency. I felt like I learned a lot about what not to do in terms of you know how to build client relationships. When I got to JWT, I really that they it was the University of Advertising, and I I learned package goods and how you do it. Um, and then Shia Day was all about account planning and really strategy and importance of strategy and how to bring clients into the process, which they were so good at. What they weren't good at were keeping clients. It was like they were great at selling in the first idea, often during the pitch. They get through that one thing and then they... <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories. Can I tell you this story? This happened to yes, me. Yes, please. Yeah. Oh my God. I am. This is at Sarah Lee. We are presenting storyboards. As this is Shiat Day in the 80s, presenting storyboards. And the client says, I love that TV spot. I really want to run that TV spot, but I'd love to see a picture of her cheesecake in it. And the creative director said, huh, he took the storyboard, he turned it over. He said, you can't have that ad. And I... So that was a kind of a moment where I went, okay, I'm going to have to update my resume. This business is going to go in review, which it did. <laughs> and I did. Uh, and it was just one of those, wait, 
the client asked for a picture of their product in the ad and we had to turn it over. There was a certain arrogance that went with that creative shop that uh, I could never quite come to grips with, but it was an amazing moment. But I will say that that was there were fun period of time in that business. It really was uh, a good, uh, there was a time where at that moment, at least in packaged goods, it, you really were an important part, partner to uh, to the agency. And that sort of kind of started to die down later in the in in my career, at least uh, until we got into brand strategy. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, you, um, gosh, I'd, you know, you have so many um, uh, different experiences on on that, and so. You were, did you ever go brand side uh, or was it always agency side? It was always agency side. And it's really, uh, you know, as I listening to your episode with Brian, uh, who described, who was diagnosed with ADHD. I, with Brian I have, Fanzo? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I know I have ADD. And I tell you, one of the great things about an agency side is that you get to work on a lot of different types of clients and projects and you use your mind in different ways. And that's important for me. That's important to my gratification. So the notion of working on one client only and being clients, I just never felt like it would work for me. And I also think little Andy and I are struggles with that the bigger organization, the sort of towing the line. I kind of need Renegade. <laughs> I kind of need that as air cover for sort of for who I am and, and being able to sort of say, yeah, okay, we named ourselves in a certain way. So you have a certain expectation and we can work this way together. But at the end of the day, I'm coming back to the agency and you're going back to the client. We're both going to be very happy about that. Was that ever challenging for you to um, work with... Um to be a working professional and work around ADD? So, yeah. And I I have to say that early in my career, I was not very productive. Uh, And it was really, there were, and and there was a couple of times where I was called out on the carpet on that because it just, it was, I struggled with it. Um, It wasn't until I think I started my own business where I realized you got to fix this somehow. You've got to find a way to manage your time and manage your schedule so that you can be as productive as you need to be and 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 not work 12 hours a day to sort of make up for the fact that you're getting so little done in certain hours. So yeah, I I I've I figured it out. Um and that part of that was we get to the discipline of writing and just forcing yourself to do something every week. That really helped. Um, what, what was, um, how did you work around scheduling? Uh, what was a tip that you would do to help yourself to schedule and keep yourself, um, you know, on track? So part of the way I think about things or is so as the leader of an organization or what are the things that only I can do that in the organization that will move us forward. Then I think about after, after that, and there are, you know, anything that anybody else in the organization can do, they should do. And so that I do that. And then what are the things that I can do that will make a difference? And I think the hardest part when you're younger is being able to anticipate projects over time, right? The, the sort of stages. And once you've done that multiple times, you get a sense of, oh, all right, they're dependencies and they're going to be dependent on me to move this from here to there so we can finish this in a month. And so I really just think about 
where are these moments where I can really insert myself and make a difference into whatever project? So if it's an ideation, like we need to come up with the idea, whatever that is, um, I'm going to put that time on my calendar. And as long as it's on my calendar, I get it done. That's one key thing. It's like, if it's not on my calendar, it's there's no hope. And if you have a to-do list and it's like a hundred things long and three of them are on their calendar, well, then you're going to have 97 things left. So I don't keep a to-do list the way I used to. Um, I just, just use my calendar as my to-do list because I know that's the limit of my day. Yeah, so true. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, I love it. So uh, one of the things that uh, always uh, in, intrigues me is how, just how uh, how just nice you are. You are such a pleasant person and you make everyone around you smile and you keep everybody uh, kind of corralled in this, this pleasant way. And, um, and I'm curious where that, that comes from and how you, you must um, have maintained your, like through all of these, the agency life and your own agency and, and, and maintaining a family, what is the secret? to your happiness and your uh and 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 how you must have maintained these shifts throughout everything you know uh so where it comes from uh is my father who is just one of these guys who uh you know introduces himself i am carl neiser he and he remembers everybody's name he's just one of these people who are really good at that and is a great listener um and so and and I'm not him. I, I've got some dark side in there too. Uh, uh, my mom was a little rougher on the edges, if you will. Uh, and, but I will say that, and when I think about my career and other people's career in the business, I mean, one of the things that was always important to me is that everybody who worked at Renegade, um, this was the best place they ever worked. And that's been important. And what's great is it, it sort of delivered on that over the years. And by the way, we had really extreme ups and downs. I mean, it was it's a roller coaster ride. This was not a trajectory, build a huge agency and sell it kind of a of an experience. And I think it's just because I'm not a killer. <laughs> I'm not. And 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 so the result is that I make decisions based on sort of sometimes that are not even in my own self-interest, but are just in the interest of the people around me. And so again, I, I sort of, these are choices that I make because I can live with myself that way. Uh, but it's important. I, I think, I think you go back to the early kid and said, I want, you know, as a little, I was short, I wanted to be liked. I still want to be liked and it's important to me. And so that's part of this deal, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it shows uh, how, how much you put into, um, when when you uh, show up and you're present in every conversation, and um, and I know that one of the things that you also said was ha- how much you uh, love writing, and uh, and you sit down and you write, and that's one of the things that you did, and you put yourself out there in this book and um, into uh, Renegade, and uh, ironically the name of your your company as well. And um, into the twelve steps to building unbeatable B two B brands, um, and um, you know the the um, uh, the book itself is is a compilation of, of everything that you've you've really done in your your career, and also uh, you know interviews through uh, C, you know what now you've done in CMO huddles and um, just an amazing uh, uh, life 
that you've lived. And so uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is um, how did it lead to the book just being started? Um, how did you get going on it? And what was the what was the impetus? Well, I'm, I'm going to connect some dots here from all the way back. So I really struggled to write as a kid. In high school, I really struggled. I was slow at it. And I had older brothers who would sweep in and help me write these things. And in college, I admit I had a girlfriend who would type them up for me to clean them up. And I wasn't a very good writer. And um, I don't think until the time I committed to writing something every week and getting one 500 to 1,000 word article that I started to actually become a good writer. Um, and I got better and better and better at it. So I just wanted to sort of throw that in there. And it was a commitment to say, I'm going to write every week and get something out there. And then part two of that is sometimes I needed something to write about. And so that's when I started interviewing CMOs and I just kept at it because there was benefit to, at the time, the CMO club, I needed something to do for them. And so I started writing about the CMOs there and it just kept going. And so book number one, after I had interviewed a hundred CMOs, someone said, Drew, there's gotta be a book in there. And I said, you're right, there is. But it wasn't because I wanted to write a book. It was just because I'd done these 100 interviews. It was a happenstance kind of thing. This book came about because I've been interviewing B2B CMOs and focused on it for five, six years now. And four years ago, we said, wow, B2B got ridiculously complicated, but it hasn't gotten better. It hasn't gotten more effective. What's going on here? And so started, we had a real problem in mind. The first book, I didn't know what the the problem was. I needed to write a book. This one was, how do we, is there a way to radically simplify B2B marketing? Could we wrap our mind around it? We developed this 12-step process before there was a book. And then we tried to execute it against with our clients. And then we did research to sort of figure out where the problems were. And, you know, we just kept iterating on it and sort of breaking it and all these things. And then by the time COVID came around, I thought the book was done, but I had to put it on hold because I wasn't sure would this work? Um, would it would it hold up in a in a COVID uh, environment? So instead of putting the book out there, I stripped out almost all the cases, all the sort of nice writing, if you will, and created a fifteen thousand word blog post, the mother of all blog posts. Put that on Renegade.com and said, "Let's see if anybody finds it interesting." And that worked out really well because we ended up, we still to this day get two to 400 uh, visits a day, people reading it uh, and uh, sort of discovering the agency and and our our branding process. And it's really gratifying because people find it and they use it. So then I kept doing more interviews from March to to gosh, just a little more than a year ago and said, okay, we can, I now know this is going to work. I now know that it'll work through COVID. I've solved some of the problems with some of the interviews. And so, yeah, there it is. 12 steps to building unbeatable B2B brands. And the problem is real. It's hugely real. And I know you know this, it's that there's B2B marketers out there that are have the peanut butter plants. It's you know way spread, way too thin, too many targets, too many data, too many technology, and not an idea. So that's what the book is about. Oh, I love it. Um, you know, uh, the the spread thin part is so true. And um, 
And, you know, when, when you talk about the, the 12 steps, um, and I know that we couldn't possibly even cover all 12 here because, well, we don't have enough time left. Um, uh, what is, what is the one thing, if you had to pull one thing out and share it here on one thing that somebody just could go do now that would make a difference in their organization out of the, whether it's out of the 12 or a micro step out of the 12 that would make a difference out of the organization that they're, they're most of the time they're just not even doing or they don't have enough time to do. Um, and it's just really not, um, it's not, it's not being done or it's just not, it's on the back burner. So. Um, the book is divided up in these four sections, cats, you know, courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific. And that's, there's a reason for that because it's a progression. And if you don't have a courageous strategy, it really doesn't matter how artful you are. It doesn't matter how thoughtful and you are in your execution or your measurements. If, if, and if, what was amazing about this research we did in 2019 was that we asked them, uh, we interviewed a couple hundred CMOs. We said, is your product or service distinct from your competition? And 60% said, yeah. We said, great. Okay. Is your marketing distinctive? 40% said, yeah. And we just scratched our heads and said, how can that be? How can you go to market with marketing that is not distinctive? So, And that's a strategic problem. It's not an execution problem. It's a strategic problem because they haven't gone through to sort of dare to be distinct. And when you look at businesses or individuals, it's like, what are the things that you can own and simplify and and dis- define yourself in a way that makes you distinct? And I tell a story in the book that I love, a construction company. They do hallways. That's all they do is hallways for co-ops and condos. It was a really hard decision for them to do it, but because they did it, they got so good at it. They win like 70% of their bids. They make more money than anybody else. And they changed the way when I was on a co-op board, the way I thought about this project. They said, this isn't a construction project. This is a complaint mitigation project. And here are the 10 emails you need that you're going to need to send to the co-op board members to help through the process because they're going to complain. And here are the things they're going to complain about. And we know what they are. And we're going to prevent them from happening. It's like, whoa, okay, that's daring to be distinct. It's a business strategy that translates into a marketing strategy. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say they would win that bid every time, right? Yeah. Every time. And when I asked him afterwards, I said, was it hard at first when you decided to do it? He said, it was really hard. We were turning down work. I said, you know, how is it now? He said, unbelievable. We, you know, everybody knows this is what we do. We're the best at it. Um, our satisfaction rating is through the roof. We have crews that are ready for anything. And the irony is, Brian, the only part of the building uh, project that we didn't have them do got screwed up because we wanted to save a few bucks. And when they handed us these emails and said, oh, 90, uh, by the way, um, we put 10% of our dollars in cleanup because that's the biggest complaint. <laughs> we go, done easiest thing ever um and probably if you look at that case you need you you don't even need to read the rest of the book because it's all in there it's just and it's a construction company (laughs) my gosh my gosh yeah yeah i guess this yes uh yes and that can change um just about any business when you start to think about uh how you can um not just niche the company, but think about it from a marketing marketing to delivery perspective. 
Yeah. Right. It, it's not just that you're in this niche, but it's how do you, what do you do to be, to really own that niche? And yeah. I, I mean, I was talking to another CMO at SADA. So they, they're cloud. You use them when you're on the cloud to help you process the data on the cloud. They used to support three cloud services. They now only support one, Google, and their business grew like 50% or more than that. I don't know what the exact number is, but the point is they focused and their business grew and it's counterintuitive, but it's not. That's what strategy is, saying no to something and then going all in. Right, yeah. I guess for our ADD brains, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it it really does make a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. It does. And for our ADD brains, what we simply do is, you know, I have the, the first chapter is clear away the clutter. And I have a little guide, a pledge that I ask people to take who read the book. And one of the steps, and this came up in a review, so I have to share it, where it says, if I add to my list, I'm going to take something off of it. That's how we manage ADD, right? We can't go, oh, squirrel. <laughs> we're going to look at the squirrel and we go, am I going to put that squirrel on my list or am I going to leave it away? And it's like, so we have to, we have to not add squirrels and oh, squirrels to our list unless we're going to take something off of it. Yeah. Uh, well, as a fellow uh, ADHD, I totally get that. Um, so, uh, so yes. Uh, and let's just turn the list over at the end of the day and not have one, please, so that we can actually have dinner and not have a list. Um, so, uh, Drew, um, what's a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? So there's an idea in the book that is this, this chapter or uh, section called Thoughtful uh, Execution. And, and one of the things that I see where businesses go wrong is that they're, they're focused only on acquisition. We've got to grow, grow, grow. And the progression in the book is employees, customers, prospects in that order. That's the thing that's going to radically simplify and improve the impact of your marketing. So if we start with that thoughtfulness and we say employees, customers, and prospects, and you're thinking, what can I do for this world, for my target that will be helpful? And this is how we got through COVID. This is how CMO huddles came through. It was thinking about, okay, I don't know what's going to happen to our business. I had no idea if we would survive COVID or not. Uh, I really didn't. And yet I knew that there were a lot of people out there that were going to really struggle that might benefit from the network that I had. So we started bringing CMOs together on April 1st, 2020, just because I thought I can make some friends and I can help some people. I had no idea if this would help our business. Six months later, we had done 55 huddles. And there was a business there, and that's become the business that you know I, I have to say is the most purposeful work of my career. And I'm 64, man. I should be thinking about fishing and retiring, and I am not. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know that that talk about a shift. Talk it's about a, a shift. shift. That anything can happen at any time, uh, at any point in our life. That at now at, at that at your at that age, uh, you just stumbled, not stumbled, you earned it, uh, and and it grew into this thing that is is so purposeful and so so in time to allow you to be able to do something that is so uh, meaningful. I I'm, I really am lucky, and yet I have to say. I did interview 450 CMOs. I put in my 10,000 hours, right? We did record, you know, we've like you, podcast after podcast after podcast. It's a skill 
that I didn't know where it would go. I didn't know when I was doing those podcasts that that was set up CMO huddles, but I enjoyed that. And so just like the interviewing. And so these pieces came together because I, I put in the time and was doing things that I enjoyed. And now they're all in one packet. What a, what a great, great um, uh, learning or look back at what that all meant. And now, now you have that. And uh, congratulations on, on that because there's no one more deserving of, of that. Thank you. I, I mean, it's exciting to be, you know, to birthing and, and there is a purpose behind the purpose, which is I do think that marketing can make the world better. And I think these CMOs can do that. Um, we just have to work to make sure that they cover their bases first before they try to change the world. And so that's what we do at CMO Huddles. We share, care, and dare each other to greatness. And it's kind of cool. I wish I could reach out and hug you, but um, it will go for virtual right now. Uh, where can everybody find you? Where can they get the book? And um, let us know. Uh, so uh, you can find me on renegade.com or Drew Neiser anywhere, LinkedIn, uh, er everywhere. Um, the book is on Amazon in audio, which I recorded. Oh my. Um, uh, uh, let's see, ebook paperback. You can even get a special hardcover edition from the website. So um, all, all, all there is renegade.com. Right. Thank you, Drew. I really appreciate you joining today. And it's always fun to uh, talk with you and be with you. So cheers, my friend. Oh, Brian, thank you. And I appreciate you, man. You're the man. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.